0: So again, please let yourself uh, sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease for this time. We're coming up on the summer solstice in a couple of weeks, all this long daylight hours. And it's really amazing um, if you start to feel it not just as the change of the light, but as the change of the planet as it moves around the sun. the music of the spheres that makes the seasons. I like to lie out in the grass sometimes when it's summer and it's dark on a dark night and the stars are out and look at the stars and imagine that instead of looking up into space I'm looking down because I mean it's all arbitrary isn't it really Um, and that gravity kind of holds you on, and you get to peer down into the center of the Milky Way and the wheeling galaxies. Because here we are in this medium yellow star with its nine planets, um, one in 10 billion in our galaxy, that wheels around the Milky Way galaxy every, I don't know, 100 million years or so rotates like a great big ferris wheel. And it's only one of a hundred billion galaxies that are all expanding as far as we can see. Houston Smith, the author of the world, books on world religions, was a professor at MIT when he first went to meet with the Dalai Lama in India in 1959, just after the Dalai Lama had um, escaped from Tibet. And because uh, Dalai Lama was very interested in science, he said, oh, an MIT professor, I really want to meet this man. He didn't realize that he was a religion professor. But <laughs> anyway, so he started to ask him about Western cosmology and, um, you know, where the universe comes from. And Houston explained the theory of the Big Bang, the origin of the universe, and then asked the Dalai Lama, do you have anything like that in uh, Buddhist cosmology? And the Dalai Lama laughed. He said, oh yes. He said, we have the Big Bang. We have many of them. Maybe we would call it the Bang 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 Theory. (laughs) Universes appear for a time, and then they disappear. The single most basic law that we can discover as we enter the art of meditation is that all things expand and contract. That's what they do. The Buddha said that everything that is born or created or comes into existence will also naturally end, dissolve, pass away and come into new forms. As Chief Seattle puts it, tribe follows tribe and nation follows nation. It is the order of nature of the universe. And we don't just see this process, we are this process. It is us. Life is a process of expansion and contraction. We breathe, and as we sit in meditation, you notice there are long and short breaths and cool and fast and deeper ones and shallow ones. If you let it breathe itself, it has all these rhythms of the body opening and closing all the time. And then you pay attention to sensations in the body. And at first it feels like tension or pain or hot or cold. But the more deeply you listen with your inner awareness, that which we call pain or tension or hot or cold becomes pulsing, throbbing, needles, pinpricks, swirling, movement. The more deeply we feel, the more our body shows itself to be a river of sensation. And, of course, on the more macro level, we're always moving it around. Even when you try and sit absolutely still, it still moves a little bit, if you pay attention. It's never exactly. It's always balancing itself. And then we get it up in this tube and move it around with the limbs that are attached to it and put liquids and dead plants and animals in this end of it and kind of it pulses them through there. That's how it works. And the cerebrospinal fluid also moves, washes the brain. It, just like the heart beats, so does the spinal fluid and the breath, the blood. And even if you pay attention on a cellular level, there's this sense of movement always. The idea of stability is an idea, but not the direct experience in any moment whatsoever. What else expands and contracts? The heart. It opens and it closes and contracts. It contracts with fear or around pain or sorrow. It armors itself. And then times it opens and makes space to hold all the opposites, anger and love and joy and sorrow and longing and peace. When it's open, it allows for all of those. And the mind Sometimes the mind and its thought processes are easy, open, expansive. Sometimes the mind gets rigid, tight, structured, defined, caught. You know that, the contracted mind. The Sufis, you know, the dervishes who turn. The dervishes turn because there's nothing in the universe that doesn't turn. They do the practice that's a mirror to the change of life. And it's not just us, but it's the seasons. Spring and summer and fall and winter and the rains come and then they end in the dry season and times of planting and times of drying out. Night and day, the phases of the moon, menstrual cycles, the stock market. That doesn't change, we know. War and peace. The school term is about to end, isn't it? One of those cycles. Your computer. Remember those um, haiku that were written? If your computer could speak to you in Zen poetry rather than in its usual error messages, it might say things like this. A file that big? It might be very useful but now it's gone. (laughs) A crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone. Three things are certain. Death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. Money, traffic, work, relationships, all in cycles. It's the reality of life. The Buddha spoke of the eight worldly winds, of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, of fame and disrepute, of praise and blame. Anybody who has only praise and no blame or vice versa? Only gain and no loss. (coughs) To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. From Ecclesiastes. Now, maybe we get the idea somehow that it's not supposed to do this. You know, it says in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna is speaking with Arjuna, I believe, and Arjuna asks, what's the most amazing or marvelous things in this world that's been created? And Lord Krishna answered, one of the most marvelous things of this whole created world is that human beings can see others all around them dying and think that it won't happen to them. This is from Lama Yeshe, who was a um, remarkably uh, wonderful sage and, and d- deliciously humorous and, and wise teacher, one of the great lamas to come out of Tibet and teach in the West. He was hospitalized after he had a heart attack, and he wrote this at first as a secret letter to one of his fellow lamas, Never have I known the experiences and sufferings which attend my stay in intensive care. Due to powerful meditations, unending injections, oxygen tubes just to breathe, my mind was overcome with pain and confusion. It is extremely difficult to maintain awareness without becoming confused during the stages of death. At its worst, after 41 days, uh, 41 days after I became ill, the condition of my body was that I became the lord of a cemetery. My mind was like that of an anti-god and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. My ability to recite prayers and meditation degenerated and I could only stabilize my meditation through mindfulness and strong effort. And it took many days, but it was finally of great benefit. And this is somebody who was... a a, a very deeply practiced and, and highly realized Tibetan Lama. We're not supposed to change or get old or die. Human life is cycles. From infancy, all the stages of being a baby and a child and adolescent, and the stages of adult life. And it happens at its own pace. No one knows how long you have. Death is certain. The only thing that's uncertain is when. You have a certain number of days. And I remember when I gave this talk one time in the past, a very good friend of mine um, was dying from the AIDS epidemic. And he was in his 30s, a beautiful young man. And... uh, in the last year of his life, he got old. You know how it happens with the HIV virus. And by the end, when he could still walk, he was walking with a cane, and his body was old, and his father came to visit him. His father was like 78. And they both had canes, and they both walked in the park and sat down on this park bench together. These two old men, only his old age was collapsed into one year in his 30s. When we really listen, this is the way things happen. My daughter is just about to graduate this week from her eighth grade um, middle school and go on to high school and um, all these changes happening in her life. In some ways, I can't quite believe it because she seemed so little before, but she's not anymore. And then as she pulls away, or I'm thinking of other friends now, my nieces are going off to college and their, their parents are looking at their house being empty of kids after 20 years of having kids there. Um, or the phases in a marriage or in a love relationship and how for a certain time, for a certain number of years, there's one cycle and then guess what? It doesn't mean, it, I'm not speaking about divorce, that happens plenty as well, but within a relationship, how much it can change. And when one sits in meditation over the course of a week, if you do some daily practice, a thousand moods, ten thousand moments, different sensations, thoughts, plans, memories, nothing solid, each moment new. Gregory Bateson, I remember him speaking about how there was no such thing as a person or a tree. He liked to talk about trees. Only patterns. There's no such thing as an oak tree. What there is is an oak tree pattern. And that oak tree pattern has acorns and seedlings and saplings and then bigger trees and then leaves and new acorns. And they drop and make new little seedlings. And what it does is the oak tree pattern cycles material element. Elements of the Earth, minerals and water through it, and creates changing oak tree patterns. Um, but none of it can you say, "This is really the oak tree. The oak tree is that entire cycle. And our body's the same. Every seven years it said, "All the molecules are different. It's not you're not the same person you were seven years ago, physically, but you're a pattern. Those molecules come in and they say, "Where do I go?" more or less and they recreate. Isn't that weird? They recreate you. Ah. And the Buddha taught that our life is five, this body and mind, he spoke of as five processes. The physical senses of the body, the feeling process, the memory and recognition, the thought and response process, and then the process of consciousness and he invited people to look at the nature of life and see it truthfully. It is always changing. From Ram Das in Be Here Now. Practice, spiritual practice, is like a roller coaster. Each new high is usually followed by a new low. <laughs> Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with both phases. There is, in addition to the up and down cycles, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these parts of the cycle are one's practice. For what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation. And what happens in your meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. It flows, it moves, it breathes, the heart, the body, the lungs, the earth, the planets. But what do we do with this? Truth. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of his cage When, after five years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down those 20 feet as if the cage were there. Out of fear or ignorance, not understanding, we create certain strategies to look for security. Some people think the best thing to do is to try to Repeat what was good. We have a pleasant experience or a pleasant circumstance and we say, great, let me make sure how long it can last. Let me do it over and over again. Clinging to what's pleasant, trying to avoid change. You know what, nothing can be repeated. Nothing can be repeated, it's always new. And when the heart is open and clear and the eyes are open, we realize that this is so, that each moment is new. Or some people think that the point of spiritual practice is to expand and open the mind and open the heart and become more and more spacious and more find this wonderful place full of openness and love and light and just stay there, which is like holding your breath. Oh, I got it. This spiritual state, I'm going to keep it. (laughs) It doesn't work that way, really, does it? We're so interconnected with the change around us. There's no separation from it. By what miracle does this cracker made from Kansas wheat and this cheese ripened in French caves and this fig grown and dried near the Euphrates turn into me? My eyes, my hands, my cells, organs, juices, thoughts. Am I not then Kansas wheat and French brie and Smyrna figs Figs, no doubt, the same the ancient prophets ate. Now, American culture, unfortunately, would rather support the idea that it's best if things don't change. That you keep your body like Barbie, basically. (laughs) And you look at TV, and there are a lot of Barbies kind of put on the screen. To show you, and everybody tries to stay young, and plastic surgery helps you stay like Barbie or whatever. Um, And in that kind of unchanging, youthful culture, there is no poor people, no old men, no prisons, no racism, no ghettos, you know and TV, and the magazines and things, all the covers on those magazines. This is how we should be. We're afraid of change. It's the shadow. And because we're afraid, there is a tremendous sadness, the cultural sadness of not knowing ourselves, of not knowing our life. And we keep the myth going by keeping ourselves busy through speed and not feeling so much. There are so many ways that it happens. This from the UPS, Waynesville. A 38 year old woman who had no idea she was pregnant gave birth to a boy after entering the hospital emergency room, complaining of a stomach ache, doctor said yesterday. Suzanne Jones and her husband had tried unsuccessfully to have a child since they were married 21 years ago. Oh, we feel like like millionaires. We gave up after about 10 years and forgot about it. In the past nine months, Mrs. Jones had gone from 118 to 165 pounds despite leading (laughs) active athletic life. Doctors examined her at the county hospital when she arrived complaining of abdominal pains and told her she was on the verge of giving birth. She couldn't believe it. She said, it couldn't be true, said Dr. Michael Ray, who 20 minutes later delivered a five-pound, 15-ounce baby crying and kicking. She took some convincing. (laughs) We lose touch sometimes, (laughs) more or less. Do you know, in Los Angeles, where... I I won't say that. I'll keep that to myself. (laughs) That was bad. Where some of my friends also live, yes. Um, Some years ago, in the long stretches of of, uh, meridian in between the big, wide freeways there, they decided to beautify parts of Los Angeles. Um, And they thought, well, they would put some plants there to make it look nicer. But they thought, well, you know, the plants aren't going to grow very well with all that traffic and stuff like that. So they, in a a whole long stretch, they put these plastic plants. This is true. (laughs) I read this in the paper. All these kind of plastic bushes thinking that would beautify the city. (laughs) Damn. But after about a year there, as all the cars and trucks went by, brrr, you know, those, the exhaust pipes just at the plant level, the plastic started to melt and turn brown and gooey and disgusting. And they had to pull it all out and put real plants in of certain kinds which could stand it. So if our goal in spiritual practice is some state, whatever, some open state, we're going to be like, get this, have that, and then be there as soon as we can, It would be in spiritual life like buying already open flowers instead of buds or like adopting an adult instead of a child. (laughs) To awaken the heart of a Buddha requires us to find the deepest respect and compassion for things as they are, for the way things are. And there isn't anything that you can hold on to in that because it's always changing. There is no enlightened retirement. (laughs) The way things are includes the cycles of stillness and action, the times of raising a family or being a renunciate or making money or retiring or spending time in nature, and finding somehow a way to be with what is with the truth of change. Now, sometimes people say, I'm okay with what is. I found some peace. But it's easy to be half asleep, superficial, more indifferent than wise. That's more like the day between your manic and depressive episodes. Okay, I'm feeling (laughs) all right for a moment. But that's not really what this is speaking about. It's not just about feeling good or feeling balanced, although those those have their place in our life. But what's offered if we look in meditation and the teachings of the Buddha, but really in the teachings of wisdom throughout the world, is the possibility of the deepest freedom, of the release of the heart, Buddha called the sure heart's release, of a freedom in the midst of Gain and loss of love and grief, of birth and death. And this most fundamentally is why one undertakes a spiritual practice. Not to find some state to stop our life, to expand or find something, that's death. Not to find some particular experience. Enlightenment is not an experience but to discover the capacity of the heart to rest in wisdom and in compassion in this moment, in the reality of the present. To be here now in this body, on this earth, in this particular day, and to make our peace, to find our peace with gain and loss and birth and death and praise and blame and joy and sorrow. Thomas Merton, when he visited Palonarua, which is this monastery in Sri Lanka that has the most enormous stone marble Buddhas carved out of a cliff, you walk, you take your shoes off and you walk barefoot across the grass in the morning under these ancient trees and you come to this cliff Um, that's been there, carved into Buddhas for almost 2,000 years. And he spoke about this. He called them the most alive, wonderful works of art he'd ever seen. Uh, They're more alive, I said to my wife when we visited him. These statues seem more alive than some people I knew. And he said, looking at these Buddhas, their peaceful smiles, he saw the silence of these extraordinary faces, the great smiles, huge and subtle, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. The great smile of peace, not of emotional resignation, but an open-hearted peace that is seen through every question without t- trying to discredit anyone or anything, without refutation and openness to the world as it is. When we sit and begin to pay attention, and it takes a kind of courage, a willingness to surrender and open, we find the armoring of the body, the tension we carry, the fears of pains or of loss that keep us closed, the contractions, the habits. And yet underneath this, the heart longs to open. It's also afraid. If I open, what's going to happen? Things will change. That's what's going to happen. I'll tell you the end of the story. (laughs) Things will change. And so we practice to come back to this simple reality of just what is now and now and now, to live in the reality of the present. Because in the reality of the present, we find the only place that we can love. To love in the past is a memory. And to love in the future is a fantasy. It might be a good fantasy, but it's still a fantasy. But the only place we can love the beginning of dusk on a June evening in 1999 and the slight movement of the trees in the wind and the color of the light, the only place that we can look in the eyes of another person and really love them or hear the frogs croaking, is in the present moment. So we practice coming back to discover that we, like the Buddha, can find freedom and can find a rest not by stopping the change of life but by opening to it. But even as we do, being honest about it, it's difficult. Our expectations arise, the layers of fear and grief that we've carried and judgment and plans and hopes. And to really be present and alive in this changing world means that we have to make enough space to allow for all of that. All the grief and sorrow we've never felt and the love and excitement and creativity we may not have felt. It also takes a lot of forgiveness for the things that we didn't do or did do. The forgiveness because we can't accept change. Someone said forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. And we have to honorably feel loss and love and hope and fear and all these things without getting so entangled in them that we lose the fact of being just where we are. To make that much space so that the dance of life moves through us and we don't close ourselves off to it. As Ed Brown, the Zen cook and poet and friend said, any moment preparing this meal we could turn into gas 30,000 feet in the air to fall out poisonous on leaf, frond, and fir. He wrote this poem some years ago when there was more fear of nuclear war. And still we cook, he said, putting a thousand cherished dreams on the table to nourish and reassure those close and dear. In this act of cooking, I bid farewell. Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open, and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I've withheld for so long. To live in the reality of the present is an enormous gift, and we do it some of the time, but we can really Discover that it's possible more and more genuinely and fully for our lives, for the people that we know, for the earth. What are the changes that are happening in your life now that ask for acceptance? What is true in your life now? Maybe not how you planned it, or hoped it to be, but the suchness of it, the way that things are. I got a letter from a friend who'd done a lot of years of meditation practice, insight meditation and other forms. She'd been also in a um, beautiful, contemplative uh, Catholic monastery for a long time. And then after having some, she said, just, experiences of being filled with joy and bliss and rapture, she went into a really deep, dark night. She went and moved back to her hometown in the Midwest where her children lived that she'd been away from for quite a time. They were working in, in their 20s or 30s. She'd been estranged from them from a, for a bit. She felt she needed to do that as part of her love, her spiritual practice. She said, and I took whatever job I could get. And after some months, I became depressed and felt dead. And I would try and sit in meditation and be filled with anguish and discomfort. And I lost all the love and beauty that I'd found in the monastery. It got worse than I could imagine. I was feeling suicidal, desperate. I didn't know what to do. And then I got a call from my work saying that I had to work double hours the next week. And I thought I really would die. I was so overwhelmed. I paced back and forth. I began to pray, she said. And I prayed to the mother of the Buddhas. I prayed to Mary and Kuan Yin and Kali and Durga and all of them. I said, anybody listening, (laughs) please help me because I feel like I'm going crazy. I was so open and so much love and now a year and a half later it's all wasted its turned to ash. Show me a sign, something. She said, and as I sat there, all of a sudden, in a moment, the whole tortured state of my heart and body drained out of me in a minute, like water going out of a bathtub. I felt it go out of my head, down and out of my body. And for an hour, I sat there again in openness and calm and joy and bliss. And I knew from that place that the difficulty I was in was the work of the heart. And I remembered to trust the divine and that these things are a part of the cycles of the path. And after one hour of this rest, I was able to somehow acknowledge that I could take it and that if that was part of the plan, I was here for it. And the very moment that I felt that unbelievably, it all came back rising up from below as if the bathtub were filling up again. (laughs) Everything was exactly as before, exactly as painful and terrible and filled with anguish, not a bit different or a bit less. But that tiny period of grace or mercy made all the difference. Send Master Suzuki Roshi said, I can teach you all of the Buddha's wisdom in three simple words. Not always so. So as we practice, what we begin to notice is that what seems solid of our body or our feelings or our thoughts or our relationships They begin to open and dissolve. Not because we have to dissolve them, but because that's their nature when we stop struggling against change. When we come to rest in what T.S. Eliot called the still point that place which is timeless in us or deathless that Ajahn Jamnian spoke about. opening to pure awareness, the consciousness that hears these words and feels the sensations and knows the light in the room and the thoughts move and rise and fall like waves of the ocean and that pure conscious awareness becomes the container, the sky, the still point in the midst of it all. At the still point of the turning world neither from nor towards at the still point there the dance is but neither arrest nor movement where past and future are gathered neither movement from nor toward neither ascent nor decline except for the point the still point there would be no dance and there is only the dance as we learn to let go, what we discover is the mystery of selflessness. This is what the Buddha spoke about. When we learn trust, we discover that we're not in charge, that we don't control or possess even our own body. We rent it, we get it for a time and you care for it, you know. You have to take care of the mileage and stuff like that right? But it's not who we really are. And try and possess your children, see how they like it, or your lovers. The idea that we own is a fiction and what we discover instead is that we are part of this process of life and that we can trust a letting go into it. As Kala Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama said, you live in appearance, and the illusion of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. And when you understand it, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That somehow as we let go, there is both less of us and more of us. And this is in a philosophy, this is something to test in your own heart, in your own experience, this mystery that somehow we are everything, we contain everything, we, we, are, we touch everything. It's all in us. Because consciousness carries everything. You know, you're not in your body. Your body's in you. And yet, even though we contain all these possibilities, This universal truth, it is also very personal. Your children, or your parents, or your brothers and sisters, your garden, your particular gifts, your way of making music, all of those. Zen master Isa, who wrote this poem on the death of his child, Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. In one way, it is all a dance that arises and passes, and yet in another way, it becomes the most precious thing, how precious it really is. The freedom of the heart is not a removal from life. Dogen Zenji said, the whole moon and sky are reflected in a drop of dew in the grass. And the freedom of the heart is that ability to know what is timeless, to rest in it, and then to live your own strange, particular, unique, weird, neurotic sometimes as Ramdas would say oh i've become the connoisseur of my neurosis your own remarkable life because there's only one of you that ever existed so mother teresa when we would go and work in calcutta in the neamalree the home for the hospice the home for the dying she would tell people after you work for a little while, go home. You know, don't come to Calcutta. We have enough people here working. If you haven't been to Calcutta, you, you know, there are a lot of people there. She said, go home and love your neighbors. Love the people on the street where you live. Love your family. You know, bring it back to where you are. Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. You are sitting on the earth. And you realize that this earth deserves you, and you deserve this earth. You are here fully, personally, and genuinely. And somehow, the wisdom of this openness, of this knowing of change allows us to bring ourselves more fully into each moment. The Buddha lived in nirvana, it says. But people sort of get the idea nirvana is someplace else far away, right? Like the eternal is there after you die. If it's eternal, it's here now too. You don't have to die to find it. And the Buddha wandered around India and loved the forests and spoke and taught and told stories and went to the bathroom and slept and cleaned his clothes, all in nirvana. Right? Nirvana wasn't some other place. And in the forest monastery where I lived, the way we practiced with all the rules, there were 227 rules for the monks. There were rules of how you sweep the paths and how you bow and how you carry your bowl. And in a way it was like a living tea ceremony. Everything had a beauty to it because you cared for each thing in its own right. And the way you set down your monk's bowl was as important as the conversation you had with some great master who was visiting the temple. That somehow the infinite and the personal become wedded when we're here in this moment. Enlightenment is not a state to be grasped. It is the willingness to open to change as it is, to let go and trust in these patterns of change. The cosmos is filled with precious gems. I want to offer a handful of them to you this morning. Each moment you are alive is a gem shining through and containing earth and sky, water and clouds. It needs you to breathe gently, for the miracles to be displayed. Suddenly, you hear the birds singing, the pines chanting, you see the flowers blossoming, the blue sky, the white clouds, and smile, the marvelous look of your beloved. You, the richest person on earth, who have been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come back and claim your heritage. We should enjoy our happiness and offer it to everyone. Cherish this moment, this very one. Let go of the stream of desires into the stream of life and embrace it fully in your arms. I think that's Thich Nhat Hanh. I don't have the name on it, but it sounds, looks like one of his poems. To rest here is to rest in your own Buddha nature. And know that the breaths, the loves, the joy, the sorrow, self and other, change as a dance. And to enter into that dance, into this dance. Because it's the only way we can really love. It's the only way we can be free. And when we let go, things become more beautiful. They really do, because you can see. You know the saying in, the, in India that a pit, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he sees only the saint's pockets. What we want, what we hope for, what we imagine, what we try to avoid blinds us. And when we can let go and trust more We see the beauty that's around us, and we see the sorrow too, but somehow the heart gets big enough to embrace it all. I end again from T.S. Eliot, speaking about this understanding, which we all know, and we all have in our moments, and in some way, coming here, we're just reminding ourselves, I'm just talking to myself, you know, because I need it. I forget, and you forget. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started, and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, not known, not looked for, but half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here and now always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown knot of fire and the fire and the rose are one. The end of the quartets. When the Buddhist spoke to people, mostly wanted he wanted to say, you too can be free, you too can really Open your hearts to the whole of life. It's possible for you. The joys and the sorrows together. And be free. So let's sit for a moment. and rest just where you are in this moment as it opens and unfolds, being in your life with compassion and ease and peace. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. When we realize and accept the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, then we find ourselves in nirvana. That's from Suzuki Roshi. So meditation in a simple way is just a reminder to the heart of the things that we already really know. I want to thank you for coming this evening. It's really a pleasure to host people up here in the new meditation hall. Um, thank you for trucking up the hill to do it. Uh, I want to apologize. Some of the shoes got moved around a little bit because they were near the door. So I hope you find your shoes before you go. Um, next week we will have um, this young Lama, first time out of Tibet, who's supposed to be a uh, a wonderful teacher of Tibetan zogchen and other practices like that and also he's supposed to do all kinds of magic tricks. Um, I don't necessarily believe in them but I don't not believe in them either. I'm, I'm just open so I'm gonna ask him if he does magic if he might do some for us. We'll see. Probably he doesn't demonstrate like that. Um, But he and I will do some kind of a dialogue on on that next Monday night. Um, Please feel free to come back and sit a retreat or come to a class or walk the land here, be nourished by this place. Um, A couple of brief announcements and then we'll do a little chant before we go. Again, Reminder the person who has the tan Honda Accord 3WWZ122 that needs to be, hopefully it was moved already so we can bring the van for people who can't walk up the hill. Um, when we leave the room, I'd like to ask that the square Z- zabutons be stacked over here um, to your left along the wall there, and that um, the brown and yellow folding chairs, um, be brought upstairs and put in the closet at this end, the near end of the walking room, if you could do that, or give it to someone else to carry up there. That would help a lot. Um, my daughter gave me this, uh, my teenage daughter, some months ago. I read it here actually in the winter. I'll read it once more and then we'll do our little chant. Dear God, it's a letter. So far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper haven't been greedy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Thank you. So I want to thank you also, because we do need a lot of help. And I think we do it together. So our chant, before we go, is this simple one. The word is namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. Bow to the fact of change and bow to your life as it is and bow to those you love and bow to those who are struggling and bow to those who are causing difficulty. Um, To pay one's respect to life as it is really allows us to open our heart of compassion. So we'll chant Namo for just a little bit and then go out into the spring summer evening. Namo, Namo. 아 야... 와... And your donations, your spirit, and um, the pleasure of company. I hope this week ahead that you um, can rest in that place that knows that everything changes and find the compassion and an ease in it. Good night. Thanks. At this little bar restaurant, place, a turtle, something or other, and um, yeah, have you been there? <laughs> Pretty much <laughs> on the water there, and um, so it was. Um, the National Marine Fisheries Service said we got to let this turtle go. We can't keep this turtle in captivity anymore. It's, uh, I don't know how many years old it's got, this big, right? So we took it in a boat, and we brought it out to the out into the weed line of the water and unlike the bear it was just what? <laughs> like two big <bear laughs> flipper strokes and it was just so gone. probably waiting every day. Every day! Like, are they let me know? <laughs> I actually think that, that's tr- that the bear story isn't really very accurate. It's a, it's a good kind of, it's really anthropomorphizing the bear. I think when you take the cage away, the bear would be to like, say on that. <laughs> so But At least people unfortunately aren't exactly I think maybe that it's an instinct kind of thing where that never went away. The instinct was still there for freedom. And yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It could have been timid. It could have not known where